If you've got a Bible with you, then um, open your Bible at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We're going to be looking there today. Um, our whole thought is about um, the responsibility of you and I as believers to be in love with Christ and not to be in love with this current world that we, we live in. So it's been said that the tragedy of all tragedies is, is that of a redeemed soul, someone who's been genuinely redeemed by Jesus Christ, failing to grow and mature spiritually. And the reason for this being such a tragedy is due to the fact that through the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary for our sins, we've been born again or birthed again to a, a new life, a lifestyle that must be lived for God's glory and God's glory alone. So as believers, God expects you and I to bear fruit, fruit worthy of our salvation experience, not to just be thinking that's okay. And that can only happen, can only occur in our maturity as believers as we grow into living like Jesus if he was here in this earth. So in our lives, the Spirit of God, he, he wants to work, work out God's plan, not your plan, not my plan, but God's plan for your life and for my life. Well, God has ordained to bring him glory by how he lives in you. And to hinder that or to minimize that in any way, that's a, a form of immaturity. It's a form of um, going the wrong direction, if you want. So uh, like, like the child who continues to grow physically, you and I as a believer, <clears throat> well, we're called to to grow spiritually, and we've got to be continually doing that. We're to be growing into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, is that your experience? Are you growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ? You see, John has already advised in verse 6 of our text that we should walk as Christ has walked. Jesus Christ is our example. Nobody else, nothing else, but Jesus Christ is the one we're to look at and the one we're to say we want to follow in his steps. And to help us accomplish all of this, God has graciously filled every true believer with his Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God convicts, the Spirit of God leads and directs and takes the Word of God and teaches us. And so we, we're, we're capable of growing. And we know that within the local church that we all would be involved in if we follow Jesus, within the church is going to be um, uh, evangelists, it's going to be Bible teachers, it's going to be pastors, church leaders that can steer and direct and help us in our walk with God. And that's so important. We need those people. And they're there for our benefit given to us as a gift by God so that we can grow to be like Jesus. So with his writing of this part of his text of 1 John, uh, the Apostle John wants to encourage his readers with an assurance of their spiritual state, their spiritual position before God. He wants you and I as his readers to know that, that we belong to Jesus, that we're genuinely kept by Jesus and secure. And, and with that, John addresses three groups of people, three groups of people who are contained within the church. He refers to as being children, uh, young men, and fathers. That's the three groups that he wants to address. And you and I fit into one of those groups at least. And perhaps in our Christian experience, we'll fit into maybe even all three groups at some point in time. And he uses these terms knowing that, that not every believer was experiencing the same level of spiritual maturity. So he addresses all those believers using these individual titles. And he opens the verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake, for the namesake of Jesus Christ, that is. And he writes here with a confidence that the people of this church were, were true, genuine believers and ex had experienced their sins being forgiven by Christ alone. And so John writes somewhat affectionately to these believers, calling them little children here, meaning born ones or born again ones, which makes 
no reference to any particular age category because he was recognizing their salvation status to be real, to be genuine. And he's putting them all into that one category together in that sense. His reason for doing so is important because he now wants to address uh, the young children living under parental direction, if you want. And he writes like this to these believers, wanting to show them that um, immature children are those in the church who, who know God the Father like an infant knows an adult, uh, meaning it's a very basic um, infantile type relationship. They should be mature, but instead they live immaturely. You know such people, I'm sure. They should be chewing the meat of God's word, but instead they're still drinking the milk of the word. So John is calling these believers immature and challenging those believers to become mature within their Christian faith. He wants them to walk like Jesus. And Paul writes of the, the Christian maturing with these comments in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14, 14 and 15. He says, we should no longer be children. Don't be children, be, be an adult, be mature. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him uh, who is the head being Christ. So I want to ask you, is that your experience? Can you say to yourself, I'm maturing as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm actually growing. I know I'm growing because that's an important step in our walk with him. And then in verses 13 and 14, John addresses the young man. He writes like this because he's he, he's maturing the believer by taking them from being little children, representing all who have been born into the family of God through salvation in Christ, every believer. And then he addresses these believers as children in verse 13, using the Greek word piadia, uh, referring to their being young, by which he, he, he transfers to their being young in their faith in Christ. That's what he's speaking of there. You've got a young faith in Christ. So we can see a progression to maturity, hence it's now referring to them as being young men. They were children, now they're young men. <clears throat> There's an expect expectation of all young men who were spiritual to have a developing interest in understanding and interpreting biblical doctrines. That should still happen today with young believers. In Acts 17, verse 11, we read of the, the Bereans who examined the scriptures every day, making sure that they were what, what they were hearing was actually true, that this was the truth. They were hearing, they wanted to be certain of this as they heard things every day from Scripture. And of course, Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, is like the classic statement about the need for correct or right doctrine. And for you and I as believers to interpret these truths correctly, Paul writes, and you know that from infancy, you've known the sacred Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he writes, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, so we can learn from it all, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the believer who follows God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we need these truths. They're essential for us. So the young man who John writes to can experience this maturity of the word of God abiding in them, according to verse 14. That's his desire for them. That is his desire for them. So these young men are strong. And doctrinal truth and that's so necessary through every era of christianity you see truth enables them to overcome the wicked one that is to overcome satan and his subtle ways of tempting them to sin uh, james writes in, in chapter 1 verse 14 of his letter but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires the word of god's not going to draw you into sin but your own desires 
will. And truth enables them then to avoid falling to such a snare. Truth enables them to know error and to guard against it. And we're the same. We, we need to know what is error and what is truth. The next step of uh, spiritual maturity is they're becoming fathers, uh, fathers in the faith. And these believers have come to know the Father, God, by understanding the doctrines of our faith. They've got to know God and who God is. Uh, these spiritual fathers mentioned in verses 13 and 14 have studied God and his character with the intent of glorifying him in as full as a manner as they possibly can as they live for him here in this earth. Uh, you men have been saved for years, perhaps, maybe even decades, some of you. Uh, can that be said of you? that you're strong because God's word remains in you and you've conquered the evil one because that's what God is expecting of us as believers. So those who truly love God must grow from being spiritual children uh, where they just enjoy the love of God in their lives to become young men with a desire to study doctrine and to grow in their understanding of biblical truth. And once, such truth, uh, once that truth has been grasped, they then mature to becoming fathers who every day attempt to grow and to deepen with their knowledge of, of God whom they love and serve and want to uh, follow with every fiber of their soul and bring honor to him. And with all of this in place, John warns these maturing believers to never fail, uh, to never fall in love with this world. Uh, so let's read verses 15 to 17 of our text. Do not love the world, he says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, obviously this is a warning to the believer, and it appears that it is a relevancy in every era of Christendom, whether it be back in John's day, or our day, or even moving into the future. This is pertinent. This is relevant to your life and to my life as believers. For example, back in the time of Paul and his ministry efforts, he refers to a young man called Demas who deserted him because Demas, he writes, loved this present world. This means Demas, who was ministering with Paul, had a greater love, had a greater affection for the world system, for secular wisdom than he had for God and for God's kingdom. He, he wanted the, the trimmings, if you want, of Christianity, but he loves something else. And Demas, by way of Demas, by way of practice, was doing what has become known as deconstructing one's faith. It's become quite popular. And by deconstructing or pulling apart one's faith, it enables you or causes you to seek elsewhere for <clears throat> whatever it is that you want. And you do this because you feel um, unfulfilled, dissatisfied with your current circumstances, your current experiences. And alongside the deconstructing of one's faith, another title, another label has been given to those who walk away from Christianity. Uh, they, they've chosen to call themselves ex-evangelicals. <clears throat> as a Bible-believing Christian, you may refer to yourself as being an evangelical. Um, so they refer to themselves as being ex-evangelical. So anyone moving away from being an evangelical refers to themselves as being an, an ex-evangelical. They have consciously chosen to no longer believe what they once held dear, what they once, what they once believed about God, about Christ, about the Bible, about the Christian faith. <clears throat> so Demas chose to consciously move away from his once held beliefs and to, to seek after the, 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 the world and the things in the world, the text tells us. 
And what exactly, I'm intrigued by what exactly was the world, this world that was so attractive to Demas that he felt somewhat compelled to, to walk away from Christ who had sacrificed his life for him and to walk away from Paul who was leading him and guiding him and um, ministering with him and seeing an incredible work done for the glory of God. What was it that was more attractive than that? What is it that becomes so attractive to a successful Christian minister, causing him to deconstruct all that he believes, uh, and perhaps even today, if you want, leaving his faith, leaving his ministry, leaving his family, his marriage, and, and, and like Demas, falling in love with, with what Scripture refers to as being this present world, this current world, this world that is he's encapsulated within. And the attraction must be very powerful, must be compelling, seemingly even irresistible for some. Why would John send out such a severe warning to believers, appealing to them not to fall in love with the world or the things of the world? Why would John do this? There's reason for it. So we need to understand the world of which John is referring to, that it's not the, the, the physical world that we live in that we might refer to as being our planet and surrounding atmosphere. We know that all that God created is, is good because God pronounced everything as being very good that he created. And he created this world. He created this planet, this universe, this atmosphere. So he says, that's good. In fact, uh, the psalmist right, tells us that the heavens declare, the heavens tell the glory of God. So it's definitely not this atmosphere, this planet, this um, uh, what we currently live within, if you want. It seems also that John is not referring to mankind, whom we often refer to as being the world. We'll say that, that people make up the world. Remember, it was God who sent Jesus to redeem sinful man, uh, such as God's love for his world. John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world. So we know that God loves people and he wants to save people and redeem them. So it's not that either. Instead, John was warning his readers not to fall in love with the world system the system that is controlled by Satan. This is the very location, the very realm that each and every true believer has been called out from by God, if you want. It's the very same realm that Jesus spoke about whenever he told his disciples that, that as disciples, you could expect to be hated because the world has also hated me. So if the world hates you today, you know, or Jesus says, if the world hates me, that's Jesus, then you know it's going to hit you as well. That, that, that just comes with the territory. So the world that John warns against and the world that uh, enticed Demas is the world order, the ideologies, the belief systems, the philosophies, the re religions of the world, the political practice and thought and so much more. That, that will cause him to be attracted to this world. That will cause him to want to go to this world. It's a world that stimulates the unbeliever in every capacity of life, if you want. And to, to, to such an individual and to such a life, John implies that the person has been attracted away from truth. From, from God, from Jesus, from the Bible, from truth, through the lust of their flesh and by the lust of their eyes, and by, by the boastful pride of life. That's what has enticed them away from this truth. Of so now here in our verse, John has summarized the sins of the world, and he breaks them into three categories, beginning with the lust of the flesh. He says, this is, these are the categories you've got to deal with as a believer today, as a believer in any time of life. Uh, the lust of the flesh is commonly, uh, you know, lust refers commonly to what's experiences uncontrolled sexual impulses. And so Paul helps us understand 
this with his words to the Galatian believers in, in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. And he continues a list there. But we get the picture that, that the sexual impulses, these uncontrolled sexual impulses, are very high in this lust uh, that draws us away from Christ, this lust of the flesh. So the, the form of lust being referred to here by John is that which will uh, go after cravings that choke out or prevent uh, fruitful spiritual life and service. Anything that will hinder your life and service for Christ, you're called to avoid because it's a lust of the flesh. It's something that's drawing you and your impulses from Christ. Then he talks about the lust of the eyes. You know, it's a wonderful privilege to have uh, eyesight and with our eyes we can appreciate the beauty that God has created all around us in our world. We even get our English word optician from this Greek word for eyes, if you want. <clears throat> the Bible says a lot about um, eyes. It talks about or um, refers to them being like a window into the person's real uh, soul, who the person really is. also refers to them as uh, an instrument of perception. And Peter says that our, our eyes can even be full of adultery, if you want. They can take us into this path of wrong, living this wrong lifestyle. So Jesus warned his followers um, back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27, 29, with these. He says, you've heard, you've heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is no more profitable for you than one of your members, that is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So, so as a follower of Christ, don't let the lust of your eyes attract you away from him in any form of lustful relationship with this world. Don't be distracted from Christ. Number three, the pride of life or the pride of one's possessions. You know, this form of pride referred to by John is a, a boasting, a, it's a type of self-confidence. It's riddled with arrogance. It's the uh, the pride that says I'm the best at everything or I'm just little old humble me. I just press on. It, it's a mixture of all of that. And we read in um, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, do you see a wise man in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So we're called not to be wise in our own eyes, in our own philosophy, in our own ideologies, but rather go to the word of God and say, this is wisdom. This is truth. The great Oswald Chambers uh, writes this of pride. It's pretty pertinent. He says, nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. This first and fundamental sin, in essence, aims at an enthroning, enthroning self at the expense of God. He writes, pride is a sin of whose presence its victim is least conscious. You're not going to be very conscious of pride. None of us really are. If we are honest, when we measure ourselves by the life of our Lord, who humbled himself even to death on the cross, and that's who we're called to compare with. We cannot but be overwhelmed with the tawdriness and the shabbiness and even the vileness of our hearts. So pride is a problem for us. And to all of these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, John says they're, they're not from God, but rather they're from the world. They're from the this world that we live in, the cosmos, he calls it, the satanically driven system by which the world of darkness that we're called to be light in lives and functions. This is where all this comes from. Satan manipulates the thinking, the actions, the lifestyles 
of this world, because this world is is within the confines of, of his authority. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that as the God of this age, being Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which should be lived out by your life and my life as believers right here among them. So with all that, we're called to live these godly lives. And John wraps it up first then in verse 17. He tells us that we, we shouldn't love this world system, which is never aligned with God's truth as declared in scripture, as declared through the Bible, because this world, he writes, don't, don't be connected to this world because this world is passing away. And that verb passing away is in the, the presence, present tense. So it actually means that this world is presently in the process of passing away, it's disintegrating, it's decaying. And outside of people repenting of sin and coming to Christ for salvation, there, there's no hope for this world that we call home currently that we enjoy and love. In contrast, John writes that the one who does the will of God abides. In fact, he says, remains forever. So you and I doing the will of God, following him through the salvation that he has given us, living out his purposes for our life, that's what Christianity is all about. That's what we're called to live within. That's why we're called not, not to love this current world, but to love Jesus Christ, to love the word of God, to love God the Father, to love the Holy Spirit, and to love the truth presented by, by the Bible and within the Bible. So we're called to live that way. As we do that, we will live for God and for his glory, and we will not be in love with this world. That's the advice of John. I hope we can take it, and I hope we can live within it. Stay true and stay strong as you live in that fashion. Thanks for listening.